Carmel Presbyterian Church's podcast channel. Open up a Bible or just listen in. We hope this week's message is a blessing to you. Well, good morning. Uh, Great to have you with us on this Sunday morning. My name is Greg Ogden. I'm one of the elders here at the church, and I have the opportunity to open God's Word with you this morning, looking at Psalm 42 and 43. Uh, The title of this message is Finding Peace in Times of Uncertainty. Might be appropriate topic for the times. I want to start with an illustration that uh, Peter Marshall gives that illustrates peace quite well. Peter Marshall was the pastor in Washington, D.C. a couple of generations ago, was a chaplain for the Senate. And in this illustration, he talks about an artist association that sponsored a contest for artists simply to submit their artistic renditions renditions of, of peace. And you can imagine some of the scenes that were portrayed. There were the serene pastoral settings with crystal clear lakes, an intimate cottage with a snug and cozy fireplace, uh, the quiet of the first snowfall of winter. But the entry that caught the judge's attention was far different from any of that. It depicted the height of a raging storm, trees bent low, lashing wind and driving rain, Lightning zigzagging across an eerily dark sky. In the center of the fury, uh, the artist painted a nest in the crotch of a gigantic tree. And in that nest, the mother bird opened up her wings over her brood, waiting for the storm to go past them in a quite peaceful way. Now, why did that catch the judge's attention? Because it really was a much more accurate portrayal of real life. Peace must be found in the storms of life. It's going to be real peace. Yes, we like those cozy fireplaces in a mountain cottage. We like the the little puppy curled up in the arms of an innocent child. But that's not really what peace is all about. Peace must be found in the midst of life's hurts and hassles and challenges because threats of peace abound all the time. We live with the insecurities of not knowing whether there will be a job or even a relationship potentially in the future. Uh, We certainly don't know the outcome of this pandemic. We're living in the uncertainties of this time. And so we feel the arrows of rejection and the turmoil of self-doubt. And so we find the psalmist really in that very same state as well, trying to struggle with what he is dealing with. He's desperately hungering to being able to reconnect with God in such a way that his troubled spirit is smoothed over and finds peace. And so the psalmist begins with these very familiar words in the first verse of Psalm 42. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? In a sense, the the psalmist here is pleading. Life is churning around him. It's in disorder. And his own inner state is in a state of disorder. And this is captured in the refrain that ties the two psalms together. Three different times we read these words. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Why are you disturbed? Why are you disquieted within me? And the apparent cause of his depression is that the enemies are unjustly accusing and taunting him. He seeks for the Lord's consolation, his intervention to vindicate him, and the Lord is silent. 
So in verse 3, we read, My tears have been my food all day long, night and day, while people say to me continually, Where is your God? And so the psalmist appeals to God, and it feels like his appeals are hitting a glass ceiling. He's not feeling any vindication. In fact, he's feeling abandoned and alone. And so he says, why have you forgotten me? Why must I walk about mournfully? Because the enemy oppresses me. And so we meet an anxious and worried and even depressed individual in this this psalm. So the psalmist says that his reason for his depression is that he's being taunted by his enemies. We can just insert our own story here at, at this point, and I want to insert some of my own story as I went through a period of time similar to what the psalmist is talking about. I go right back to the challenge that occurred when I got a phone call on April 30th, 2008. My urologist was on the other end of the line. He was saying these words that you don't want to hear. You have prostate cancer. And from there, it got worse. (laughs) Uh, My initial uh, diagnosis was somewhat okay. Uh, If you know anything about prostate cancer, you know that there is a a score or a scale that you get to tell you how virile or how lethal the cancer can be. It's called the Gleason score. It goes from 6 until 10 uh, on that score, 10 meaning that it's probably escaped uh, into the body and is is spreading. My initial score on that scale was an 8. It quickly became a 9. Whenever I shared that with people who were knowledgeable about this disease, that I had a 9 on the Gleason score, I saw fear in their eyes. And that fear was transferred to me, and I had to say to myself, yikes, this must be bad. My doctors, in fact, were probably the worst when it came to piling on fear. My apologies to the medical profession today. One doctor who I thought was being helpful, uh, who he thought was being helpful, was my urologist who had done the initial diagnosis of the cancer. We sat down with our consultation, and I remember exactly the words that he said. You know, if you had received this diagnosis uh, 10 years ago, I would have given you a 25, no, a 10% chance of survival. For some reason, that didn't feel too comforting to me. And then I was with my primary care physician. I had done a nuclear bone scan just to see if there was any spread of the cancer. I was in his waiting room. The doctor came in. He opens up the folder. He had just taken a first glance at the results of this nuclear bone scan and noticed there was a spot on my, my ribs. And he said, I think without even thinking about the fact that I was sitting there kind of thinking out loud, oh, yeah, we know that uh, can- prostate cancer is known to spread uh, to the bone. And I felt like saying, you do realize I'm right here, right? You see I'm in the room listening to what you're having to say. And then there was another doctor who simply said, what you've got is a bad actor. So these things were kind of piling up on me as I was getting this increased information about my own state. So from the time of that initial diagnosis to the time of my surgery six weeks later, uh, I confess that I went through some times of deep anxiety and fear. There were darker moments, especially in the middle of the night. I made this notation in my journal on May 16th, 2008. The worst time is in the middle of the night when I'm alone with my own thoughts. I can imagine the worst all too easily. With every twinge in my body, I was convinced that the cancer had spread to other parts of my body. And then I made another notation in my journal. 
Father, I hear noise in my head and my heart. There is an underlying anxiety about what will be found, what will be next. I find anxiety makes it hard for me to focus. It's very self-focused. It pulls me away from others. I just want to cocoon. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? The psalmist was speaking my own heart at the time. But I would just say, insert your own life experience here at this point. And yet the psalmist refuses to collapse. He refuses to give up. Because he goes on to say in that refrain, hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. He's saying essentially, I'm not going to remain stuck here in this despondent state. And so what we find in this text is three attacks, three assaults <laughs> that the psalmist makes on his own despondent spirit. So let's take a look at these as ways to speak to ourselves as well. The first thing the psalmist tells us is to remember. Don't forget to remember. Actively cultivate a memory, he's saying. And the psalmist roots that memory in times when he was in the presence of God in worship. So we read in verse 4 of chapter 42, These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I went with the throng and led them in procession to the house of God with loud shouts and songs of thanksgiving, a multitude-keeping festival. The first thing the psalmist does is to give himself hope is to say, it's not always going to be this way. He reaches back into his past. He almost visualizes, you can almost see him tasting the experience of, of praise and, that he had with the th multitudes as they were keeping festival. And so he was feeling again that joy of the presence of God in his life that he experienced in the past. And he thought, well, if I can experience in the past, I can bring that same experience into the present. This will occur again. If God is so tangible in the past, he can be so again in the present and the future. So we need to collect spiritual memories. <laughs> Just like we preserve human memories in photo albums, we need spiritual photo albums uh, to collect so that we can go back to them and look at them again and bring those into the present. So let me give you a, a couple of snapshots from the Ogden photo album uh, that I remember during that time where God just showed me a bit of his presence, as if the Lord is saying, I see you. I know what's going on in your life. I haven't abandoned you. I, I know what's happening. So let me remind you of a, or share with you a couple of those, those things. The first had to do with getting insurance coverage. And the second had to do with scheduling my surgery, the date of it. Initially, my HMO uh, refused to allow me to go out of network to go to the doctor that I wanted to see. I had come to know about a very skilled surgeon that had a very great reputation who did robotic surgery with what was called the Da Vinci system, what is called that. And my primary care physician, who was also the head of my network, refused to allow me to go to that doctor. Now, we were living uh, in Chicago at the time, and this doctor was located at the University of, of Chicago. But fortunately, I was able to make contact with a chief medical officer of a, of a network, and I was describing to him my plight of not being able to get insurance coverage. He said, well, I just happened to have been the boss of the insurance company that is now at the head of, this, head of uh, Illinois. 
And so he made a phone call and uh, talked to him. And lo and behold, I was approved to go to the University of Chicago outside of network. I remember the day very clearly when I got the phone call from the insurance personnel, a woman who was working with my primary care physician. And she said, I don't know how this happened, but you've been approved for the University of Chicago. And I said to myself, well, I know how it happened. Thank you, Lord. I see you. I've got my eye on you, the Lord was saying. The second seemingly small thing had to do with scheduling the surgery. When you have a rapidly growing cancer in your body, you want to get it out as fast as possible. But because of the popularity of my surgeon, as well as some other scheduling complications, they had to push the date for my surgery out much further than I was comfortable with. But then I got a phone call from the scheduling nurse for my physician, for my surgeon. And the scheduling nurse said, uh, would you like Friday the 13th of June uh, to be your date? Gee, I said, hmm, I wonder why Friday the 13th is available. Ha ha. Uh, and I said to him, hey, listen, I know other people don't want that. They're superstitious. Uh, I'm a Christian. Every day is the Lord's day. Sign me up for that date. And it was great to have that moved up. Again, it was those, one of those little signs that says, I see you, Greg. You're not out of my eyesight. Uh, you're right there in front of me. This morning, we get an opportunity to, to share in communion. Communion is a time to remember. We eat the bread, representing the body of Christ. We drink the cup, representing the shed blood of Christ. Uh, these signs that are the demonstration of God's love for us. And Jesus says, what? Do this in remembrance of me. Every time you get together, you will be then having on display here my love for you. Gather around that. Practice that together on a regular basis. Cultivate the memory of who I am and what I've done for you as you regularly partake of the elements of the Lord's Supper. So when we come to that moment uh, this morning, remember why this is, that through Christ's death, he paid the debt for our sin and opened up the way to the heart of the Father. So the first thing the psalmist tells us here is remember. Then the second way to fight back despondency, he says, is relinquish. If the first step to peace is to remember the past. The second step is to relinquish to God in the present what you cannot control or change. So much of our turmoil in life is chafing against that which is, uh, that which is unchangeable. And we bemoan what's, what is, though we can do nothing about it. And that's exactly the state that the psalmist is in. How do I know that? Because he's asking those why questions. Why does this have to happen? It's as if he's wrestling with God, hoping to prevail with him. And we know that uh, that will never happen. When we wrestle with God, we know who wins. So what are these why questions? What are the energy, what's the energy that he's putting in to kind of talk with God and talk him out of the current circumstances? Let's see a couple of these why questions. Why have you forgotten me? Why must I walk mournfully because the enemy oppresses me? Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? Uh, these are the types of questions to which we get no answers. Stone cold silence because we're refusing to accept what is. 
I'm reminded of the wonderful prayer that Reinhold Niebuhr wrote uh, that we call the serenity prayer. Anybody who was in a 12-step program knows this prayer easily by heart. It's got great wisdom to it. It says, God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things that I can, and wisdom to know the difference. Wow. When you enter into a potentially life-threatening illness, something that potentially can take your life, Elizabeth Kluber-Ross has told us that we enter into stages of death or dying or stages of grief that are very predictable stages. I went through these. And you probably know them. Denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and then finally, acceptance. So I quickly moved into denial. Oh, everything's going to be fine. No big deal. I'm going to whip this thing and go on. But my doctor's visits quickly started to sink in and said, oh, this is bad. I, I can't deny it. The second stage is anger. I frankly don't remember being in the anger stage. Maybe I suppressed it. I don't know. Uh, but I never had the why me God or are you punishing me for something I've done in my life because of this. Now, it was more matter of fact, why not me? <laughs> but where I got stuck was the bargaining stage. That bargaining stage is, God, if you do this, then I will do this. And this is the way my bargain went. Lord, if you get me through this, I will be the most thankful servant you've ever had on earth. <laughs> I will wake up each morning blessing you for all your benefits to me. That's where the bargain is. Lord, if you do this, then I, I will follow through and, and do this. Uh, I even knew I was doing it and still did it. Some have called this, you know, foxhole faith, what the bargains you make when you're trying to get out of something. And what I needed was to just be reminded of that first phrase in the serenity prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things that I cannot change. God, give me peace in the midst of these circumstances that I have no control over. Now, let me make a distinction here that I think has, will be very helpful to you. I mentioned Peter Marshall earlier, and now I want to bring his wife into the picture here, and her name was Catherine Marshall. And she made a distinction between resignation and relinquishment that I think will benefit us. Catherine Marshall went through an 18-month period of battle with tuberculosis, and she was confined to her bed during this time. And she discovered that there was a huge difference between resignation and relinquishment. Accepting our circumstances does not mean to enter into an attitude of resignation or some form of Christian fatalism. Remember, the scripture says that we're not to thank God for everything, but thank God in everything. And this is the way Catherine Marshall describes resignation. Resignation lies down quietly in the dust of the universe from which God seems to have fled, and the door of hope swings shut. On the contrary, the scripture does not teach us that we are pawns in some impersonal force of which we cannot change. In fact, we are in a relationship with a loving father who is good and who has our best interest at heart. And when you know that, you can move from resignation to relinquishment. Throughout Catherine Marshall's 18 month of battling tuberculosis, as I said, she was confined to her bed. And she attempted during that time to manipulate God to do the things that she wanted him to do. She bargained, if you heal me, then I will serve you. 
She found herself writing notes of contrition to all the people that she thought she might have offended or hurt, hoping that uh, that would show God that she was very serious about serving him and dealing with any sense of punishment as a result of this. But finally, she got to the point where she said this, Lord, I'm beaten, finished. God, you decide what you want for me the rest of my life. I've discovered that I want you more than my health. Once she relinquished her life to her loving father, that in itself was a healing, accepting her circumstances. I want you more than anything else. Well, what she got in addition to that was a healing of her body and a return to health. With the refrain saying the despondency of the spirit of the psalmist, he says, why have you, are you cast down on my soul? Why are you disquieted within me? It's as if he's there in a state of resignation. He is st- stuck. Uh, there's no way out. God is absent from the universe. But then he says, hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation, my savior, and my God. Jesus modeled this prayer of relinquishment for us in the Garden of Gethsemane, didn't he? The time when he was facing the cross, he cried out to his father, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will be done. Yes, if it's possible to change the circumstances, Lord, if you have a plan B at this point, this is a great opportunity to put it in. But I trust you, Father. You're my Abba. I'm willing to do what you want me to do. He surrendered to his father because his father had his best interest at heart. Relinquish is the second R. So remember, relinquish, and then I imagine now you're ready for a third R, (laughs) and that is uh, resolve. Resolve in faith to allow the Lord to go before us and fight our battles. And this is what the psalmist says. Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and your dwelling. The psalmist pulls himself out of his own despair by reminding himself of who God is. I say to God, my rock, you are my stronghold. Then I go to the altar of God, to God, my joy and delight. I will praise you with lyre, oh my God, my God. And I think what we see in these words is resolve. There's a resolve that he's going to take, in a sense, control of his future, in a, in a sense, that, that he's going to speak to himself. One of the remedies for spiritual depression, depression and turmoil is to have a good talking with ourselves. We need to give ourselves a good tongue lashing sometimes. <laughs> take yourself out behind the barn and give yourself a good thrashing. Uh, and I think this is obviously what the psalmist is doing. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God. I'll again praise him, my Savior and my God. Quit wallowing in this despondency, he's saying to himself. I like the way the British medical doctor turned preacher, Martin Lloyd-Jones, put it. He said, we need to talk to ourselves rather than allowing ourselves to talk to us. Now, what did he mean by that? When we allow ourselves to listen to our own self-doubt and let our imagination paint a depressing picture of the future, that's allowing ourselves to talk to us. But he says we need to reverse that. 
We need to talk to ourselves. We need to remind ourselves, if God is for us, who can be against us? If God did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, will he not give us all things with him? That's allowing ourselves to talk to ourselves. When I began to see I was facing an uncertain future, I realized I had a choice as to where to put my thoughts. I could wallow in fear and imagine the worst, or I could perform an intervention on myself. I would say to myself when fear intruded, I don't need to go there. Stop it. Place your thoughts on the comfort of God's companionship. And this is a very rational thing to do. I found myself going to Jesus' very rational words in Matthew chapter 6 when he said, therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life. Now, this is in the context of Jesus saying, don't worry about food and clothing and provisions like that. Look at the lilies of the field. Look at the creatures I have made. I take care of all them. Won't I take care of you as well? And then he says this in a very matter-of-fact way. Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life? It just makes no sense. It's not rational. All this does is drain your energy from your good pursuits. It saps your strength. It doesn't allow you to anticipate God's loving provision in your life. And then as you move to the end of this section of the text, and this is kind of one of my favorite portions because I think there's maybe a little bit of Jesus humor here. I don't know if he even had a little bit of chuckle as he shared what we see in verse 34. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Don't go out tomorrow and get all the troubles of tomorrow and bring them back into today. Don't you have enough to deal with today? Why are you bringing tomorrow's problems into today's present life? Isn't that enough for you? I like the way Mark Twain puts it. I think it's the best commentary on these verses that I've ever read. He said in his old age, I have known a great many troubles, but most of them never happened. So as we say in recovery programs, one day at a time, stay present, don't get ahead of yourself. And oftentimes you might begin this day with, this is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. On Friday the 13th of June, 2008, I had a radical prostatectomy, as it's called. Or I like to say, you never want to have a surgery that has the word radical in it. And I imagine many of you know exactly what I'm talking about. About five weeks after that surgery, I I preached about my experience. I did it from a seated position. Anybody who know anything about the after effects of prostate cancer surgery know exactly what I'm talking about. And I called this message Reflections on Finding Peace in the Midst of Life's Threatening, un- life's threatening Uncertainties. Now, at the time, there was a lot of uncertainty. They could not say for sure that they had gotten all the cancer. They wanted me to go through 37 follow-up radiation treatments, which I did. Yet here I am, blessed 12 years later with no evidence of the return of the cancer. And it's always a good reminder for myself as I look at the lessons of Psalm 42 and 43 of what I was learning during that time and what I'm sure I will have to learn again with challenges in the future. 
So what's the territory that we have covered today? We're told to keep a memory book of the times of the joy of the Lord's presence that are unmistakable. These things I remember as I pour out my soul, he said, how I used to go to the house of God with shouts of joy and praise among festive throngs. Remember. Secondly, relinquish. Relinquish what we cannot control to our God who loves us in life or in death. And finally, resolve to hope. We have a choice about where we place our mind. Put your hope in God. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the honesty of the Psalms and particularly these two Psalms, 42 and 43. We thank you for the crying out of the psalmist. Why am I cast down, O my soul? Why are you disquieted within me? He reaches out for God and at times feels like there's no one on the other end. Then he sees that he can remember the times when God was palpably present to him and bring that back into the present life. He relinquishes what he could not control to a loving father who cares for him in all circumstances of life. Then he resolves to speak to himself, to perform an intervention on himself and to make sure that he keeps his mind on those things that will give him life. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Carmel Presbyterian Church, visit our website at www.carmelpres.org or any of our social media pages. Have a blessed rest of your week.